Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community that is about discovering fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. So even a little introduction. So this is Bradley. Bradley's my friend, first and foremost, a friend of mine uh, for many, many years. He's also my teacher. So I study at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick. I don't go there often, but when I do, I get to sit under Bradley's teaching. And he's become a mentor and a guide in so many ways. And he is someone who constantly points me to Jesus. And that's why we've asked him to come this weekend, is to point us to Jesus and the truth of the kingdom, the truth of God's gospel for us. And he's going to share that with us. And so, Brad, you're welcome. We're so glad you're here. Tell us the gospel. Sure. Are you, uh, is your mic on? Yeah, it should be on. Let's just check the mic. Is it muted? It's unmuted. Okay. Are you able to hear me okay? Not yet. Jesus didn't need a mic. I don't know how he did that. (laughs) Blessed are the cheesemakers. Okay, so um, I'm so grateful to be here. I greet you uh, from my wife, who's pastor at a church called The Bridge. I greet you from Archbishop Lazar Pahalo, who is my mentor at All Saints of North America Monastery. And so I kind of straddle different worlds and different church cultures and This is one of them for me today. So good to see you. Um, As as Wade said, I'm here to preach the gospel. And this icon of the resurrection says a whole lot about that. In the Eastern churches across the world, when we say, we never say Christ rose from the dead. We say, Christ is risen. Every Sunday morning is Easter. Every Sunday morning, Jesus is alive. And what this icon wants to show us is that he did not emerge um, alone from an empty tomb, but that he descended into Hades. He found Adam and Eve, humanity, and raised them up with himself. And that's what he wants to do with us this morning. He wants to descend into our Hades, into our darkness, into our struggles, into our anxieties, into our fears. Yes, okay, we're Christians, but raise us up anyway. Raise us up with yourself. Infuse life into us again this morning. And one of the ways that we can do that is to remember the gospel. And I just, I love the worship set this morning where we, we sang about the blood of Jesus, then we ingested the blood of Jesus, and, but what's that even about? How do you tell this to a little kid? Well, the blood of Jesus represents the cross of Christ. Well, what does that represent? A crucifixion 2,000 years ago, a form of torture? No, it's how Jesus died. With self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. The crucifixion is what we did to him, but the cross is what he did for us and does for us this morning. So this morning we have... We were even beginning to practice that exchange. I bring him my sorrows, I bring him my shame, I bring him my guilt, and what does he give? 
self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. That's what the blood means. And that's what we experience. So we need to continue preaching this gospel to ourselves. Nobody needs it worse than Christians right now. Have you noticed? And so, um, um, so I'm going to preach the gospel. When what, what I want to say first is the gospel's perfect. It doesn't need an upgrade. Christ died, rose. What was the third one? Reigning and coming, right? And so, um, so that doesn't need an upgrade. It is the story. We're not going to change the gospel. In my church, the gospel is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the story. We trust the story. It's a powerful story. However, how I tell the story continually needs to be reviewed, tweaked for faithfulness, and for how it speaks to our day and our generation. And uh, a friend of mine, Steve Robinson, he showed me a way to tell the story that involves chairs. And all the chairs are about is a little visual to remind us of the orientation of God to humanity. And what you'll see is if I tell the story twice, the direction of the chairs changes our point of view, even if you have the same story. So, listen to the story, visualize the story, remember the story, and just sort of take note what the chairs are doing in terms of telling you about God's orientation to us. So, um, first of all, I'm going to share how I used to tell the story, and then some glitches in it, and then some uh, now how I would tell the story. And the old way I told the story, I really liked the metaphor of the courtroom, of law. That sin is law-breaking behavior, and really, sin needs to be punished. And that this frames us as guilty, and God as judge, and Jesus as advocate, and cross is the place where God punishes our sins in Jesus instead of us. And if you'd believe this, then you are justified. You are declared not guilty. Very courtroomy, very Latin, very Western. But in the Eastern churches, the Greek churches, the Syrian churches, the Indian churches, uh, they lean towards a different metaphor. Not so much the courtroom, but the hospital. Where sin is not just law-breaking behavior that needs to be punished, it's much worse. It's a fatal disease that kills everybody. And you cannot punish that disease out of you. That doesn't solve the problem at all. Have you ever tried to spank a fever out of a baby? A doctor told my mom that when I was dying of food poisoning as a child. Just spank them. And yet, so you, you don't punish... HIV out of someone by putting them in a prison cell, oh, that'll cure them. That's kind of silly. And so Jesus comes along and he says, you, you don't need a punishing judge. You need a great physician, and here I am. You need a good Samaritan who takes you to a church and transposes it from a hospice into a hospital. And when you come to church on Sunday morning and you take the wine and the bread, you are drinking the medicine of mercy that can heal you from the disease of sin that is killing you. And so 
this, uh, my retelling of the story, I tend to lean to that metaphor now. But that's still just metaphors. Trust the story. So I'm going to tell the story twice. The first time won't take as long because I'm displeased with how I taught it. Preached it with an anointing and saw people come to Christ. But you'll see why it's problematic. So in the beginning, God takes Adam and Eve and he plants them in the garden to be as the image and likeness in the world. And they're there to take care of the garden and to represent him, but the unthinkable happens. And they're tempted to sin, and in sinning they become sinners. And in sinning and becoming sinners, God, who is wholly righteous and just and cannot look on sin, separated from them. And so sin separates you from God, right? And so um, they are expelled from the garden into the alienation of their sin, and they have children. And here's Cain and Abel. And Cain, in his sin, turns from God. He goes and kills his brother. And you know, throughout the Old Testament, we do see God trying to enter covenants with people, but the whole Old Testament is a series of failed covenants. Covenants with Abraham that bless the whole, all the families of the earth, and he's going to have a miracle child. And what does Abraham do? He goes off to Hagar's tent. He's going to do it his way. And in sinning, he breaks covenant, and disaster happens. And, but you know, God doesn't completely abandon them. He remembers Abraham's family, and he, he wants to set up a covenant again. This time with Moses, now their family is off in bondage in Egypt and says, we're going to go set my people free. And what does Moses do? I'm going to do this myself. He goes and he kills an Egyptian and ends up alienated in the wilderness for 40 years, separated from God because God is holy, righteous, and just. He can't look on sin. But, you know, God doesn't give up. He establishes He establishes. Uh, a covenant with David. It's like through you is going to come a Messiah and you're going to be my king and David likes hot tub. <laughs> it's another disaster and you can just read the whole Old Testament, this series of failed covenants where people continually turn from God and his holiness, righteousness, and justice must send them into exile their temple is destroyed. Their homeland is gone. And they end up in bondage over and over and over. And when they're not, they're killing each other. It's anarchy. Have you read Judges lately? Brutal. Literally. Right? And then, because of this series of failed covenants, God must establish a new covenant. So he sends his son to do what Adam could never do. To obey him perfectly. And never once does he turn away from his father. He's the only one. And yet, even then, what we never expected to happen, happens. He is sent to a cross, and on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And because God the Father is holy righteousness, holy, righteous, and just, and cannot look on sin... He turns his back on his own son and pours all the wrath of God out for all the sin of humanity onto his son. And he endures this 
alienation from God, separation from his own father, and in fact, uh, dies our death. But thanks be to God, his father raises him from the dead because he too is holy, righteous, and just. And now, if you will believe that God did this for you, that he sent his son to die in your stead, to be punished for your sins and to be raised up, that if you will turn to him, he will turn to you. Oh yeah, we all start separated from God, but if you turn to him, he'll turn to you. And if you turn from him, you experience that alienation. And if you take that separation from God all the way to your death and into the grave, well, that's too bad. But you're not dead yet. Thanks be to God, we can have an altar call. Get up out of your seat, come forward, turn to God, and he'll turn to you. I mean, you don't want to go to hell, do you? No, I don't want to. No. Anyone want to go? I don't. Okay, come on up. And I do. And then some don't. You're like, why wouldn't you do that? That's weird. <laughs> and that's how I used to tell the gospel. Um, and then I saw some glitches. I thought, I have the story, but I'm not sure about the orientation. There's some strange things going on here. Like, number one, it pits God against us. He's too holy, righteous, and just to look on sin. So, and we're all sinners, so we're separated from him. And I'm like, is that how the story actually goes? Where did we get the idea that God can't look on sinners? Let me tell you. Half a verse in Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk's complaining to God about the sin in the land. He says, Lord, your eyes are pure. You are holy. You can't look on sin. And so we made a whole theology of it. We didn't read the rest of the verse, which if I could summarize, it goes like this. Your eyes are pure. You're too holy to look on sin. So why do you? That's right. He does. He looks on sin all the time, or he'd be, where would, how could he even be in the world? And in Habakkuk, he says, I do look on sin, and I'm displeased about it, so I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send a Savior. Another verse like this, Isaiah 59, your sins have cut you off from God. Oh, no. Separation from God. But you keep reading in Isaiah 59, he says, but I'm not pleased about this, so I'm going to roll up my own sleeves, stretch out my own arm, the Messiah. He's going to come, and I'm going to send my spirit, and you will never be cut off. So it's sort of like, gee, read the rest of the chapter, man. So this idea that God is pitted against us, can't look at us. Did we forget who Jesus is? You think, do we think that when God came into this world in the flesh of Jesus, that he was too holy and righteous and just to look on sin? He ate with sinners all the time. Or are we saying he stopped being God? That's a heresy. God, God sat with sinners. God touched unclean people. God looked them in the eyes when they were lying to him and betraying him. 
And God did not turn away. He came toward. The good shepherd goes down into the ditch, into our tangled mess of thorns. And I love how Jesus says he looks for us and seeks us and chases until he finds them. How long? Until he finds them. When will he give up? Never. Until he finds them. And so this idea that our sin has somehow caused God to turn away from us, it's not the story. Worse, it pits God against Jesus, as if Jesus isn't God or as if the Father and Son somehow have a temporary interruption in being the one God. How many gods do we have? One. Three persons, indivisible. And yet somehow we have imagined God the Father looking at the cross and going, ooh, that guy's sinful, I better turn away. Or worse, I'm so wrathful, I better punish him. That's weird. Well, where did we get that idea? Kind of one verse, and by the way, I used this to defend it in my master's thesis. Quite embarrassing. Psalm 22, let's look at this whole chapter. Um, Psalm 22 begins with the words of Christ from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the way, those on the weekend, for the choir director. That's a hint that it's about Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, there, see? Was Jesus wrong? If he says God forsook him, he did, right? Well, let's keep reading. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night I find no rest, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted you, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were put to shame. We're not put to shame. But, but I am a worm and not a man. Literally? No. He's describing an experience we go through that he has entered into with us. And in that experience, he is scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Okay, this is a direct prophecy of the crucifixion. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. The Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It's welted within me. Melted within me, my, my mouth is dried out like a potsherd. I thirst. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me out in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Sound familiar? But you, O oh Lord, do not be far from me. 
You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from this sword. My precious life from the power of dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. And then he starts to call out to us this Sunday morning. Stony Plain Alliance. Praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. Why? For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. He has listened to my cry for help. What was my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was it a description of God turning his back on his son? No, it's a cry for help that Jesus tells us his father answers and testifies. He never once turned his face from me. Let's keep reading. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. And what's the result of the cross? What is the outpouring of his blood for the world? The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Who will turn to the Lord? All the ends of the earth and all the families of the nations. Who? All the families of the nations will bow before him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve them. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. It is finished. Far from turning his back on his son, the father heard his cry for help and showed him that not once would he turn his face away. And out of that experience, in our despair, Jesus says, oh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So I want to tell the gospel in a way that's faithful to the scripture. I don't want to make up hymns that say the Father turned his face away. Psalm 22 says that's not true. Not once. Third glitch, very quickly. If you turn from him, he turns from you. If you turn to him, he turns to you. Who saves me? I have to save me. Prodigal son story, kind of, you know, well, I'll go home, and when I go home, wait, he's already running to me. Good shepherd, he's already looking for me. Pearl of great price. He's already sold everything to come down to find me. He's the hound of heaven who never stops pursuing us. And so now let's tell the second story over again, or the story over again. Um, Because of time. I've totally lost track. In the beginning, God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. 
He walks with them in the cool of the day. They live in fellowship. They're representing him, and then the unthinkable happens. They listen to the serpent. They take the uh, fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They, out of their shame, they create an image of God they need to hide from. He never gave them that impression before. And what does God do? He comes looking for them. Adam, Eve, where are you? Never mind. What you're wearing? Why? Who told you you're naked? And then the blame game, like, he did it, she did it, it did it. And in his grace, he removes them from the garden so that the tree of life doesn't keep them permanently under the curse of death. They leave, and what does God do? He goes with them, and he clothes them, and he keeps them warm, and they have a kid, and his name is Cain, and he's going to kill his brother, and what does God do? He comes and finds him and says, what are you doing? Don't do it. But he does it anyway. Cain kills his brother, and God comes and finds him. Where's your brother? You know, I don't know. <laughs> Cain, Cain ends up leaving, going and founding a civilization based on murder, and what does God do? He gives them a patriarchal mark of protection so no one can take vengeance. This is the story. God comes to Abraham. He says, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to give you a son, and he's going to be a miracle. And God, God finds out Abraham goes to Hagar's tent instead. And they have Ishmael. And what does God do? He goes and finds Hagar in the wilderness. And she's the first one who names God, the God who sees me. And he gives her a child named Ishmael, from whom 12 great tribes will be established. And... Then he comes to Abraham and says, and by the way, you still get your miracle child, and Isaac is born. And through him, all the children, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And from that great nation that emerges, we have Moses, and he says, go, set my people free. He kills the Egyptian, goes into the desert. What does God do? He comes and finds them in a shrubbery. <laughs> and he says, the plan is still on. Let's go do it. And they... They have this incredibly great exodus, the Passover, the miracles, the crossing of the Red Sea, the entry into the promised land, and it's the promises of God are faithful and true. And out of that nation, in now in a promised land, uh, rises up David, David the voyeur, David the murderer, David the liar, and God says, I'm going I'm to create a throne from you, and on that throne, one of your seed will reign forever, and his name is Jesus. And by the way, remember Bathsheba? She's the mom. She gets to be in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then this just keeps repeating. So we don't just have a series of broken covenants. We have a series of people who go into alienation and God chases them. People of God are so bad, so evil, so wicked, but God is holy, righteous, and just, so he comes to find them. Pulls them out of exile, says, if you don't repent, I'll repent. If you don't run to me like we sang about today, I will run to you and I will bring you prophets with such a beautiful gospel that it will cause your hearts to turn towards me. While you were my enemies, I sent my son and forgave you. While you were ignorant and rebellious, I came to you in person and reconciled you to myself before you even turned. 
Here is a man, he's betrayed his family, he's betrayed his nation, he's betrayed his community, he's a tax collector and an extortionist. He's got short man syndrome. He's definitely alienated from everybody who would care about him. And what does God do? He walks under a tree one day and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm going to have supper with you tonight. And when I have supper with you tonight, we're going to become friends. And what does, what does Zacchaeus do? Out of that experience, he pays back everybody he's extorted with 400% interest. And with the money he has left, divides it in two and gives half to the poor. Why? In order to earn God's favor? No, because God came down to him and became his friend. Here's a woman who's framed for adultery. The Pharisees want her to be stoned to death or the temple establishment. What does God do? He bends down in the dust with her, starts writing something in the dirt until finally, one after another, everyone leaves, and it's just her and Jesus. And he says, where are your... Where are your accusers? They're gone, my Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, as a little boy, I heard it this way. Go and sin no more. Or else. No. I'm giving you a fresh start. You don't have to go back to that guy. You don't have to live in this shame. You're not going to live under this condemnation of this day. What do you want to do with your life? I want to follow you. Game on. Let's do it. Here's a man through the tragedy of the curse, probably no fault of his own, is born a quadriplegic or a paraplegic. You know, we've got his friends have heard that there's a beautiful gospel, that there's somebody in town who might be able to help him. And in their faith, they bring him in. What does God do? Well, the first thing he does is he looks up because he feels tile tumbling into his hair. And he's like, whoa, what's this? And he sees these four faithful friends dropping the guy on, their, on his stretcher down to the ground. And he looks around and he goes, you know what? Everybody in this room thinks this guy or his parents caused this problem because of sin. And Jesus wants to take that silly notion off the table immediately. And he says, first of all, your sins are forgiven. And then the people in the room are like, yeah, anyone could say that. Because that's true. But can they do this? Young man, get up. And his, his crippled arms begin to straighten out. Strength comes into his legs and he gets up off the ground. He's like, whoa, this is for real. And becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ. Here is a woman whose first marriage ended, second marriage ended, third marriage ended, fourth marriage ended. Come on! What's going on? Well, we always thought maybe she was a little bit promiscuous or she was, it was always her. You know, in that culture, women were chattel property. If she's had five husbands and the one she's with aren't her now, isn't hers now, she's been discarded. She wasn't good enough. She's ostracized. She's at a well, and what does God do? He sits down with her and he says, I think I know your problem. You're not a slut. You're thirsty. And I'm going to install in you a spring of water in your belly and it's going to gush up. You'll never be thirsty again. She becomes, in church history tells us, Saint Fatina, the light bearer, equal to the apostles and first evangelist to the Samaritans. 
She has a family. She raises sons, and they go off to be missionaries all the way to Rome, where Nero takes and tortures her children in front of her, and they won't renounce their faith. They start dismembering her son while they're alive. Once they're dead, they take her, and they, they, they call her to renounce her faith, and she's like, are you kidding me? I met a guy at a well once. And to kill her, they threw her down a well. Why did they throw her down a well? Because she told the story of the one who was faithful to her and had her heart. Here's a man who's so demonized and mentally ill, emotionally ill, bound up in chains. He lives in a graveyard. The kids are like, don't go down there, except at Halloween. It's kind of cool. Total demoniac. They... He breaks chains supernaturally. They're terrified of this guy. And what does God do? He gets in a boat and he crosses Galilee, Galilee and he goes and finds him. He puts his foot on the shore of Gennesaret and, and I think spiritually the whole place quaked. And he comes to the man and he says, what's your name? I'm Legion. And I'm reading in now. This is called Midrash. No, not you. Oh, I'm Bob. Oh, hi, Bob. <laughs> He's humanizing the guy. We made up this really dumb idea that to exercise a demon, you have to find their name. Rumpelstiltskin. No. He's humanizing this man who's lost his name, and then the demons speak out. He's like, well, oh, you go, and off they go into the, into the pigs, and okay, we can talk about that problem another time. But why are there pigs? Anyway, the man gets his mind back. And here's a crazy thing. He says, can I follow you now? And Jesus says, no. Like, well, what? I want to go with you. No. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to stay here and tell the story. And the people in that region ask Jesus to leave. But the man stays and he keeps telling the story so that the next time Jesus comes, a revival starts because that man's been his John the Baptist preparing the way. Awesome. Here's a woman who came to Freshwind Christian Fellowship, a church we had planted, for people on the margins, people with disabilities, people in addictions and the poor. She was in rough shape, alcoholic, hid vodka around the house, abandoned her husband, you know, came back, rescued really out of exploitation. And uh, God comes to find her and he begins to clean her up. She begins to come to her church. She learns how to pray. She becomes one of our intercessors. She's really good at inner healing. And what happens? Well, she falls off the wagon. She goes back to the streets. She leaves her husband, her job, her church, her children. At times she's living in a box. In times she's living in a, in, in a, in a pickup truck. And uh, she's really in bad shape. And what does God do? God finds her out there through another addict. And this man was not a believer. But he was in love with her, but he was terrified of her. And he phones me one day and he goes, You've got to help me. She's like crazy. I said, put her on the phone. And she starts cackling. And I'm hearing all sorts of strange stuff over the phone. But in the midst of it, I hear a little girl voice say, help me. And I 
usually screw this up, but that day I got it right, and I said, I can't help you. But remember the one who is in you? Do you have, does he have your permission to heal you from the inside? And she, and she said, yes. What happens is uh, her first husband, who she abandoned, finds her and her boyfriend on the streets and detoxes them both for two weeks, then puts them into recovery houses. And in that recovery house, she encounters Jesus again. In her heart, she sees him sitting with her, and he's taking her needle kit, and, and uh, through, through dirty needles, she also got hepatitis, and now he's strapping his own arm and filling her syringe with all her sin and plunges it into his arm. And she's like, no, you can't do that. You're Jesus. You're holy and righteous and just. And he goes, is this not what I've done for the whole human race? And he takes all her sin and all her sorrow and all her shame and all her guilt and all our messes and all the destruction we brought on ourselves by turning away and he swallows it in love and gives us the blood transfusion. And in the recovery community, I'm quite opposed to calling anyone cured. But I can tell you this, she, from that moment, she's not had a craving in over 20 years. It, it gets crazier. <laughs> she goes for her interferon treatments and they can't find the hepatitis. Secular doctors in British Columbia write, healed by the power of faith. It gets crazier. Her boyfriend finds Christ in the recovery house. She calls her first husband and says, could you walk me down the aisle? This is Hosea stuff. And he does it. They get married her and the new guy, and they live there after about a year. The, the first husband says, you know, you guys need more time with the kids. Why don't you come live at our house, and we'll set up a basement suite. I'll move into it, and you can have the rest of the house, and we'll co-parent the children. And they do it. Eventually, he sells his half of the house to them. He didn't have to give them anything. And he's kind of, he would say he's a nominal Christian, but he goes this, if Christianity is about anything, it's about forgiveness. And that's kind of all I have to give. And uh, the reconciliation is awesome. We come back to the cross. Where is God on Good Friday? He's on the cross. Paul says... God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. And when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He forgives everyone, everywhere, for everything, for all time. He's already towards us. So it's not, if you turn to him, he'll forgive you. It's, he's forgiven you, so turn to him. You may have alienated yourself from him in your mind, says Colossians, in your head. I've turned from him, so he's gone. And you actually experience that delusion, which is the fall. But what's the truth? Your sin cannot separate you from God because he's united himself to the human race and he's not leaving. And his mercy endures 
until you die. No. And so here's an awesome thing. On the cross, he takes the world on his shoulders with all our sins and sorrows, and he goes down into the grave, and he leaves them there, and he raises us up. Now, I just love this proclamation. Um, so many people have run from him all of their lives right down into the grave, and what does God do? He chases them right into the grave. He says this, Behold, I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Here's a thought experiment for you. If he holds the keys of death and Hades, what do you think he'll do with them? John, John tells us in red letters from Jesus' own voice, and all those who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of God. They will rise. And some will rise and rejoice, and some will rise and they may still want to run. I don't know how long you can run, but there's a day when we bought them out. And Jesus never does. So I love this part. This is where we'll do this and then we'll, we'll, we'll um, pray. So I'm like, I'm going to run from God now. And he's like, what you doing, Brad? <laughs> uh, I don't really want to talk to you right now. And at the church, they said, if I turn from you, you won't talk to me. He's like, that's weird. Because <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's when he's in my face. And I run a little bit more, and I run a little bit more. And he's looking, wait, wait a minute, Brad, what are you running for? And I'm like, could I have 20 minutes? I don't think so. And he's like, leave me alone, leave me alone. I'll never leave you alone. I'm going to run after you. And I'm like, get, get out of my room. Oh, one day I just get tired of running. And he's still there. And I surrender. We get to do that again this because it's not about the day you became a Christian. Salvation is exactly this journey of the one who never leaves us or forsakes us. Father in heaven, thank you for your reckless love. Thank you that you never leave us alone. Thank you that we run from you and you chase us forever. That your loving kindness is everlasting that while we were still ignorant, sinful enemies, you had already finished it. You had already finished it. And now, as your beloved children, who you've never disowned, we surrender again in this moment to your love. Uh, we just say, finally, yes. Uh, bring me to rock bottom. There's a Russian proverb that says, when you hit rock bottom, you'll hear a knock from below. And it's him. And so thank you, Lord, that even when we descended into our hell, your hand was right underneath us. And you didn't wait for us to turn. And in you, all the families of this world will turn and will kneel. And so we do that today.
Amen. Thank you for tuning into our podcast today. To discover more about Stony Plain Alliance Church and its ministries, visit our website at spaconline.com. Grace and peace.